Cast Strength, the Whiskey Podcast, brought to you by myself, Torrin, and my brother and co-host, Ronan. Follow us on Instagram at Cast Strength Pod or on Twitter at Cast Strength Pod. Enjoy the show. Slash. We're live. Joined again today by my co-host, Ronan. How are you doing? I'm fine. How are you? I'm very good, thank you. I'm excited to try some two uh, whiskies I've not tried before. I've tried some independent bottlings from them, uh, or from independent bottlers' version of them, uh, but I've not tried their, their own bottlings, which we're going to sample today. Yeah, um, very interested in trying these at the same. Uh, I've tried independent bottlers, bottlings of these, but never delved into the, or the official bottlings from the distilleries of, from the companies. Just before we start, I'll do a little bit of housekeeping. For whatever you listen to us on the podcast, we are on a number of sites now. Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, uh, Pocket Cast, Radio Public, Anchor FM. If you're listening, just throw us a little review, a little rating. Yeah. Leave us some nice comments. You can also follow us, follow us on social media. We're on Twitter and Instagram at Pod. And if you feel the need to want to email us, you can do it at gmail.com. Any questions, insights, feedback, always appreciated, as long as they are positive. Yeah, and any requests. Um, I suppose any requests for kind of whiskey or beer, we're happy to take them on board. And as long as we can find them in our local kind of spirit and beer shop, then we'd be more than happy to go get it. Uh, for you to try because it's all new for us as well, I guess. Absolutely. Well, most most the whiskies we've tried so far have been have been new. So podcast number three. Who thought we would have got this far? Yeah, I better better hope it doesn't go any higher than podcast number five because that's as far as I can count. <laughs> I'll take up the count after that. Right. Okay. Um, will we just crack on with the first whiskey? Yeah, get fired straight in. First beer. So we'll start with the beer. I am trying a foot the foosball hipster. Right. Um, it's the Dortmunder Lager. It's the ABC. Very nice can, actually. What attracted me to it was the yellow wall, obviously copying it. The Dortmund. Dortmund. Dortmund FC. Dortmund FC, right. Yeah, so, so yeah, the Dortmunder Lager. What about yourself? So, uh, last, maybe a couple of weeks ago now, I put out an Instagram post asking if anybody had any suggestions for beer to try on the, on the third podcast. And uh, our follower and our listener and my friend, uh, must point out, at Nemofagin96, suggested, have you tried Tenants? So I thought, yeah, I don't know if I've tried that one before. I've looked for it in my local shop and I found a nice bottle of Tenants that I'm sure you have seen on uh, our Instagram as we would have uploaded it uh, actually later on today. But yeah, it's a, it's a Glasgow lager. I'm not sure if you've heard of it. Uh, it's brewed at Will Park Brewery in the east end of Glasgow. And uh, I'm not sure if it quite falls into the craft beer uh, kind of sector of the industry, but it's a refreshingly crisp lager brewed in Glasgow. Is that what their marketing team have come up with? <laughs> That's a staple like, of any Scotsman's diet. Yeah, it's probably Scotland's national drink, if you're on about specific beers. Uh, yeah, it's probably the most drunk beer in Scotland as well, especially in kind of pubs and... Uh, that type of place, which obviously aren't open just now. So yeah. uh, it's in a bottle, which is quite different. I usually don't get out of a can. <laughs> so the first whiskey we're trying is the Kleinleash 14-year-old, which, if you've tried Kleinleash before, is, I guess, falls into that cult sort of distilleries. It's got a cult following. It's got a yeah. cult following. You usually find more in varying bottles of it from, again, independent bottlers. But we've went for the distillery's own Kleinleash 14-year-olds, 46%. This series of release, or age statement release, started in 2002. But obviously right. this is a, will be a 2021 bottling. Yeah. Um, Kleinleash has got quite an interesting history behind it, um, which we'll go into. Mm-hmm. Um, opening and closing and so on, and, and quite an interesting future ahead of it as well. Yeah. First of all, it's a lovely bottle, isn't it? Like I don't know the bottle doesn't... It doesn't necessarily tell you uh, how good the spirit is inside, but it's a cracking bottle. It's got the it's got the wildcat of Scotland, which is the crest, uh, the coat of arms, sorry, of 
uh, Sutherland. So yeah. the, the kind of few remaining Wildcats in Scotland are all kind of up there in the Cairngorms and Sutherland, and uh, it features proudly on the bottle there, which coincidentally. The cat also features on the McPherson uh, coat of arms as well. There's your coat of arms history <laughs> uh, part of the podcast. I, th- I thought I would put that in there for uh, my friend Donald McPherson, who uh, is proudly uh, McPherson, but also his favourite whiskey is from Climbleach Distillery. Some needless and wild plugs for your friends on that. Oh, yeah. I'm expecting a wee bit of money or something for <laughs> a, a kickback at least. So when you mentioned Sutherland, there is, we'll know the whiskies and we'll, we'll try it. It was actually the Duke of Sutherland who founded the distillery and invested pretty heavily within the, the sort of rural region of Scotland. Um, Kleinleash is a distillery, it would be put in the category of what would be a clearance distillery. Yeah. And it was a distillery that was essentially formed through the Highland clearances. Yeah, um, that's, that's what I was going to ask. So after... The Duke of Sutherland. Duke of Sutherland, yeah. After the Duke of Sutherland cleared the the Highland people off their land, well, people were the, the remaining farmers were then. Well, what essentially happened was the um, dukes up and down Scotland, I guess, as they cleared, as they wanted to clear Scottish people out, or Highlanders out, found that they could make more money from grain farming and such like, and sheep, and sheep and grazing yeah. and such, rather than the rents that they would. Yeah. illegally charged the people. The yeah. the tenants that were so the, so all very poor. Yeah. But yeah. the people who were originally from the land, the Dukes discovered that if we actually shipped them out, we could make more money. Yeah. So that's what they did. They shipped people out down in the lowlands, abroad, the Americas, and the Dukes set up a number of businesses. So he set up coal mines and other businesses in the area, and eventually one was a distillery, which the remaining people of the area were forced, not forced to work on, but they worked on. Yeah. Quite a clever businessman, I guess, the Duke, because the money that the workers were paid from the distillery was only spendable in his other businesses. Right, okay, so was it like they could only get their groceries from... Essentially, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, The coal to heat their houses, the food to eat, the money that they made from working in the distillery, they were only able to spend that in the Duke's other businesses. Right. Essentially, he was just giving money back to himself for the labour that was used. You could put it as smart businessman, I suppose, or you could say just a heartless man or just, in general, just a duke. Yes, you could You could probably look at it from many different angles. A good businessman, but also they were partaking in the Highland clearances, so obviously not, not a very particularly nice system that was introduced. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, that's where Kleinleash originated from, the first distillery in that area in 1819. Um, But going from that, Kleinleash's history is checkered in success and failure. So established in 1819, Kleinleash has got a very checkered history of being open, being mothballed, being closed. Um, The first distiller, James Harper, filed for bankruptcy in 1827. Right. uh, With John Matheson taking over. Right. He eventually went into bankruptcy again in 1912. Uh, which was then purchased by DCL, right? Which, for people that know, for people that don't know, I guess uh, DCL eventually becomes Diageo, right? But it, that seems to follow a pretty similar kind of uh, fortune that a lot of distilleries that were founded in the early eighteen hundreds they went bankrupt a couple of times. They got mothballed a couple of times. They opened and closed, and eventually they got bought over by DCL. Yes, so. The trend that tended to happen was when licenses were granted and people would start distilling, they were good at distilling, they produced good spirit at the time, but they seemed to not be very good at managing the continued success of the the distillation of the spirit, and then eventually would go bankrupt. So, yeah, DCL acquired the distillery around 1912. Again, 1931, the distillery is actually mothballed. So, Kleinleash eventually developed quite a, eventually became quite popular due to its involvement within Johnny Walker yeah, and was a big component of Johnny Walker. So Kleinleash was very, very successful. Yeah, so Johnny Walker obviously is the most famous brand, probably not even just famous whiskey brand, probably one of the most famous brands in the world based out of Kilmarnock. I mean, Johnny Walker, the symbol of Johnny Walker is synonymous with yeah. whiskey or drinks in general. The Walking Man is, yeah. uh, I, I would say it's one of the biggest brands. Uh, yeah. 
There's not much, but probably McDonald's overtakes it nowadays. But yeah. <laughs> it's up there. There's some very interesting. If listeners want to go on and Google them, there's some very interesting knockoff Johnny Walker brands. Right. Okay. One was in Ukraine. Yeah. And was just blue label, red label knockoffs. Didn't even bother hiding the fact that it was a knockoff. Um, that was actually a distillery in Ukraine. There was another one, the North Korean whiskey. Right. Okay. Um, I've only actually seen this because I was lucky enough to be in South Korea. But I noticed that North Korean whiskey, it was Johnny Walker, the same bottle shape, the same label right. in Korea. And it was just completely knocked off. Right? Uh, and it's funny that you, one of the biggest brands, I guess, that's when your stuff starts getting knocked off. Yeah. yeah. And due to the success of Klein Leash at the time, there was in around 1967, a new Klein Leash was built adjacent to the old Klein Leash distillery. So there was already a Klein Leash, but then they built another Klein Leash. So they built another Klein Leash, they called it Klein Leash A, right. which was bigger than the Klein Leash B. Which was the original. Which was the original. So right. in 1968, the original Klein Leash, Klein Leash B, was mothballed. Right, okay. So that just meant Klein Leash A was left. Which is actually the second Klein Leash. Which is actually the second Klein Leash. Right. They like to make it confusing, don't they? They do. Kleinleash A was built in a way that I had never known about until I researched it, but it was built in this Waterloo style. Right. Now, Waterloo style, well, I'll come back to that, but it was built the same as Kalila uh, and also resembles Manic Moore and Craig Allocate. Right, okay. Because they were also built in this Waterloo style. Right. Now, the Waterloo style is, it's a six-still distillery, the outside wall of the still house must be glass, and the mash turn and uh, the mash house and turn rooms were designed to make the best use of gravity. And this falls into the, the the aspect that they were trying to avoid the use of needless pumps. Right. Okay. So the gravity would help along with that, making it more, or making it cheaper to run the distillery because yeah. they weren't running so many pumps. Of course, if you're setting up a distillery you would probably like to use the kind of natural force of gravity to help you along the way. There's no point in pumping something up two floors when you can use natural gravity to to take it down. Exactly. Now, Waterloo's style comes from uh, a Dr. Charlie Potts. Right. And he essentially worked for the engineering company that DC or Diageo employed to to design the distilleries. Yeah. And Waterloo is the name of the street that the engineers were based on in Glasgow oh, okay. and that's where it comes from so it's Waterloo Street engineers yeah and they called the style of distilleries that they were building Waterloo style right they, as I said they applied the same style of Kalila obviously Klein Leash Glendullin Glenord Glentoggers right okay Linkwood Manic Moor Brackla Tinanik this Waterloo style was applied to all these distilleries yeah, so this is this kind of late 1960s yeah. distillery building that you see that look quite factory like I know Glen. Mm. Uh, there's a few distilleries you listed off there that do have that kind of factory kind of look to them. Yeah, they're just designed and built by the same, within the same style, which was came from Dr. Charlie Potts. Right. He was, he was the engineer who designed Kleinleash A in 1967. Right, okay. Kleinleash B, the original Kleinleash, mothballed in 68, is then reopened as Brora Distillery in 1969. The famous Brora. The right. famous Brora Distillery, which then later closes in the 80s. Right. Brora was reopened, Kleinleash B, because of a dry spell with an island distil- Isla distillery. Right. So Kalila wasn't distilling and DCL wanted to produce a peated spirit right. for their blends and that's why Brora was then reopened. So Kleinleash B was reopened to produce a peated spirit. And do you know why Kalila was not producing at that time? Was that during the... The, the drought on Isla, which sounds quite sounds quite uh, unthinkable that there would be a drought on an island on the west coast of Scotland. Yeah. But I know that distilleries on Isla were stopped production for a certain time uh, because there was a drought on the island and they didn't have enough water, basically, yeah. to give to all these distilleries who were producing whiskey. What I've got noted down for the reason that Broda was re-established it might fall coincide with the drought on Isla but yeah. Kalila just went under refurbishment right okay and so they couldn't produce at the time right okay so they used the fact that they had a distillery already at Brora that could start production so this distillery that wasn't producing at all yeah Kalila 
stopped producing so they were like right we need to start producing a peated malt again so they they fired up the kilns in Kleinleash B yes. which is the original Kleinleash but is now called Brora yeah, right. which is reopening fairly soon I think it is. Brora has got a, like an absolute major following we mentioned it in a previous podcast uh, there's 40 year olds 45 50 year old Brora's mm. cutting about yeah. uh, obviously very expensive it's kind of one of those distilleries that's closed down it has got a very big following just because of the quality that they're producing. Yeah. And you always see with closed distilleries that their popularity and history grows in how good the spirit was. The yeah. distilleries closed down all the time, I guess, then because the spirit wasn't very good. Aye. But because they're closed and they're not producing, the spirit suddenly becomes this, oh, this is... Fantastic. Yeah. A little bit like Little Mill. Yeah. Although completely demolished now. Little Mill closed because the spirit wasn't very good, really. Uh, it was really soapy and people didn't like it. Yeah. Little Mill closes, burns down twice, and then everybody goes, oh, a Little Mill. And you go, well, it's, it's that exclusivity of yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. It's that, oh, we can't get it. It's not producing anymore. And also, like, absence makes the heart grow fonder. Yeah. And uh, people always remember things better than they were in that does take place in the whiskey industry. Very much, yeah. So, nosing the Kleinleash, tasting the Kleinleash 14, what are your thoughts? I've been nosing it as you're speaking there. And first of all, I think it's warm and it's inviting. Just off the first initial uh, kind of the nose of it. Mm. Slight whiff of smoke. I don't I don't know if you'll tell me. I don't know if there's any peated barley in there. But you get that kind of slight whiff of smoke off it. You've got a lovely kind of green apple. Then the citrusy notes come through. You've got a kind of orange, slight, slight lemon, but I would, I'd be more inclined to say kind of orange. You've got honey sweetness, and then you've got, you've got a wee bit of a, a wee bit of a funky note, maybe a slight kind of furniture polish, but really complex in the nose. You can see why this is a distillery that a lot of people do love. What do you think on the nose? The nose, I tend to agree with you with the notes you're getting. Oh, a horrible grassy lime gingeriness as well, citrusy yeah. fruits. I really like the sort of ginger influence in it as well. As well, I'm getting, as I said, fragrant. It's quite spicy, complex, warm leather. Sorry, warm leather. Worn leather. Yeah. Almost like an old sort of boot shoppy smell about it. Right, it's got that mustiness. There's a mustiness, which is quite typical of a Highland distillery, I guess. It's got that sort of heavy, herbal mustiness to it. Um, on the palate, again, I put a little soft smoke, very, very gentle on the smoke. Honey, citrus notes again coming through. What about yourself on the palate? First of all, you notice that oily kind of feel to it. It's got that kind of lovely, woody kind of forest notes. Yeah. Slight bitterness, but it goes back to that oiliness, which is probably the waxiness that Kleinleash is so famous for. And yeah. so many people... Uh, refer to Kleinleash in that manner. It's a waxy whiskey. Yeah, it's when you... I think if somebody mentions Kleinleash whiskey, the first sort of thought to describe it, the words would be waxy. Mm-hmm. It's candle wax. It's got this thickness to it. It almost sort of sticks to your mouth. Almost like if you get kind of like uh, raw, like honeycomb, do you know? Like yeah. Not just honey, but you get the actual comb yeah. as well. It's kind of like that. It's It's got that kind of, it's more than just honey sweetness and kind of oiliness and it's got that kind of waxiness to it as well. Yeah, so that waxiness from Klein Leash was sort of discovered by accident. Right. The natural oils that would sit in the faint receiver. Yeah, the low wines in the faint receiver. Yeah, left this gunk sort of just yeah, it's kind of like a kind of, it sounds horrible but it's a residue. Black it's not quite oily because it sticks to the low wines of the fridge yeah. so it sticks to the bottom it sticks to the sides it sticks to the top it's a kind of black oiliness that you yeah. would never want to get on your hands or anything yeah. like that but it's it's a feature in most low wines and fence receivers yeah so because of this residue they discovered that this waxiness would come from Kleinish whiskies yeah so during a, a cleaning period the Spirit in the whiskey that was produced after that for a period of time, they discovered that it lacked this waxiness. Yeah. The synonymous sort of trait towards Klein Leash. So they 
basically broke it down that the residue that was left in the phage receivers was adding this waxy note to the spirit mm. um, and therefore they have stopped cleaning and removing this the natural oils in the faint receiver so that Klein Leash would continue with the, the traditional waxy note that it has. Yeah, I've got a feeling I should explain what a faint receiver is because unless you're familiar with how a distillery kind of the production works, it might just be words. Yeah, it might yeah. just be words that aren't understood. So obviously most people that are listening, if you don't, that's fine. But when you're distilling whiskey, you're taking basically a beer and you're putting it through two stills. You're putting it through a wash still and then you're putting it through a spirit still. Mm. When you put it through the wash still, you obviously distill it and it comes out as low wines. And that low wines goes into the low wines and fades receiver. After that, you're putting what's in the low wines and the fades receiver into the spirit still. Mm-hmm. And from there, you take your heart's cut, which is probably from like 75, maybe 73% down to around 60%. But you, that's alcohol strength. That's alcohol strength. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But you've got your, you've got your heads and your tails. Yeah. Or your four shots and your feints. Yeah. Which is your heads is your first distillate that comes off the still. You put that back into the low wines and the faint receiver. Yeah. And then you take your heart cut, mm-hmm. and then at 60 or 63%, you cut it again, mm-hmm. and you take uh, your tails mm-hmm. or your feints. Mm-hmm. So you take your tails, you take your feints, and you put that back into the low winds and uh, the feints receiver. So what you've got in your low winds and feints receiver there, you've got you've got your heads, mm-hmm. you've got your tails, mm-hmm. and you've got your low winds. Yes. You've got, what happens at the end of the distillations, both on the wash still and on the spirit still, mm-hmm. especially around the kind of like below 50% mm-hmm. alcohol, obviously as you carry on the distillation, the alcohol percentage coming out decreases. Yeah. At the end of the distillation, you begin to get your kind of low volatile compounds mm-hmm. start coming through, mm-hmm. uh, but they're also very oily. You get a lot of kind of oils coming through there, and then they gather mm-hmm. in your low wines and your faints receiver, and that creates at the residue. Yeah, that creates the residue. So the next spirit that comes through picks that picks up. Picks that up, or the next batch you put in yeah. to the spirit still has all the oils from the wash still, has all the oils left over from the last spirit run. Yeah. So you really, you're just left with a concentrated flavour mm-hmm. and kind of oily, but loads and loads of, loads and loads of congeners mm-hmm. in that low wines and faints receiver. Um, so that builds up over time. Yeah. And when you say that they cleaned it yeah. and then they didn't get that kind of flavour coming through, that waxy flavour, mm-hmm. that's because when you clean it, you lose all that flavour that's yeah. already in the low winds and faints receiver. So basically, cleanly should only produce an unpeated malt. Yeah. Or they only produce the, 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 the kind of signature malt that we are, we're doing, uh, we are tasting today. But at distilleries where they produce, say, kind of maybe two malts, say maybe an unpeated malt and a peated malt, yeah. you, you have to clean it. You have to clean, clean it still, clean everything. Yeah including the low and faint receiver, uh, before you go, say, back from peated malt to unpeated malt, because yes. you'll get a wee bit of that character the residue, residue left over. Uh, the residue left over. But once you clean it, you need to do, like, kind of maybe four or five runs into that low winds and faint receiver yeah. before you get the same flavour yeah. that you did in, say, the middle of your production cycle. You know what I mean? Yeah. So... Klein Leash probably would have had to do several runs, especially how they've got such a waxy malt. Mm-hmm. They would have had to do several runs, months, to get back to that kind of signature waxy and then the feeling you're getting from that whiskey. Yeah, and they're, they're just sort of left with months of, one month, month and a half left of spirit that has Does, no relatable character to what their signature yeah, tasting because they've cleaned out that kind of flavour cauldron yeah. of kind of waxiness and oiliness mm-hmm. which necessarily like the they're not going to get that flavour back for a few months after that yeah so what Klein Leash have done to offset the need now of producing spirit that doesn't have the same characters is they'll remove the natural oils from the low and faint receiver before a silent season clean everything, they'll then re-add the previous residue mm. back into the receiver. 
so that their next run is immediately back on yeah. kind of the waxiness. Yeah, I'm unsure whether it's immediately back, but yeah. I would presume it, it sort of kickstarts it a little bit quicker. Right, because obviously Clyde and Leash will have their techniques and I don't know what that is, but yeah. that would suggest to me they're scraping off the kind of thick, oily, black residue. Good luck. And then cleaning it, and then when they go to do the next run, they're sticking it back in, they've gathered that up, and... Yeah, if it does the trick and it keeps their kind of malt tasting really it's quite good as it is, then yeah, the, no, no worries. So, as I mentioned before, looking into the future of Klein Leash involves Broda Distillery. Yeah. And obviously, Diageo now, Klein Leash, they recently announced, recently being 2017, announced that there'd be a huge investment within their distilleries to improve the, the tourism aspect that you see in Edinburgh building the Johnny Walker yeah. building that is sort of really trying to enhance their, their visit experience yeah and I did make a little note because I found it quite funny uh, Diageo pledged to spend a lot of money to update time leash new bars tasting areas and such they also have pledged to improve the landscape around the distillery right okay and I'm not comparing what Diageo are doing now to what the Duke of Sutherland did during the Highland Clearances right. all I'm saying is improving landscaping sounds like something the Duke of Sutherland would have suggested to the, the crofters at the time we're just improving the landscape yeah as, as the Duke of Sutherland would have been looking out his grand manor although presumably he's probably an absent Duke uh, maybe something we can go into in a later podcast I'm unsure but presu- he would have a manor house up in that region and you could just imagine his torn wee face looking out the window if I spend a bit of money here I can improve the uh, landscape you know, of this area you know what I can improve the landscape of this area and by what what he meant by that was I can uh, evict all the Highlands um, Scotsmen <clears throat> And send them somewhere, because he sent them down to Glasgow, and uh, they did not speak the Lowland language, uh, and yeah, it was just a horrible time for a lot of people in the Highlands of Scotland. Yeah, so I'm not saying that the Adieu were going to do that, I'm just saying I've sort of seen a similarity uh, in what I would imagine the language be at the time. (laughs) Right, will we move on to the next whiskey? Yeah, absolutely. Right, so the next whiskey we're going to be trying is a... Tobermory, 12-year-old, unpeated single malt. It's 46.3% alcohol. And it's a mixture of uh, first-fill bourbon and uh, some virgin oak. It's uh, non-chill filtered from the bottle. It says it's non-chill filtered and uh, presumably uh, natural colour, but it doesn't say on the bottle. You would presume it was natural colour because... The take I always look at it, you presume it's natural colour because it's non-chill filtered. Yeah, but I also I would also think that why if it is if it is natural colour, why don't you put that on the label? Yeah. Why don't you put that on the carton? Um so, so by non-chill filter natural colour. Yeah. What do you mean by that? So what I mean by unchill filtered is when a whiskey goes to bottling um, so when it's taken out the cask, it's at cask strength. It's usually above kind of fifty percent, might be kind of kind of forty nine, fifty percent. When it goes to bottling, every single whiskey producer adds water to it to bring it down to kind of a standard, a standardized level, which is often around the forty six percent mark. But it can be forty three, can be forty. But when you add enough water to the the spirit, the whiskey, to go below. 46%. Mm-hmm. The whiskey kind of changes a wee bit. When when it, when that whiskey, say, 40% gets cold, it will go cloudy. Yeah. Uh, it won't look as nice. But that's why chill filtration was brought in. So chill filtration is the process of taking that spirit at 40%, cooling it down to, I think, round about zero degrees, and then you strip it of that cloudiness Mm -hmm. and you take that cloudiness out but what you also do is you take out a lot of the natural colour so when you've chill filtered something you're taking out a lot of the natural colour which then means you have to add colour to it so as a whiskey drinker I'm looking for the most natural product yeah I don't want Caramel, because that's the, that's the colour in the use. They use E E one forty five or something. Uh, e one four five or something. They use that colouring to give that whiskey the colour that the consumer 
would associate with whiskey. So if it is unchilled filtered, you presume natural colour. Mm-hmm. I would like it to be full on the bottle, unchilled filtered, no artificial colour yeah. added to it, and then I know I'm getting the most natural product I can. Because obviously a distillery's got to add water to it. Yeah. Not everybody likes to drink whiskey's cash strength. Yeah. I like cash strength whiskeys, but I don't like them all the time. Yeah. This is bottled at forty six point three. Mm-hmm. That's a good strength. Yeah. The, when you mention you would like it on the label, very good. It's definitely in law in Germany, and it might also be law in Denmark. But they, I think it's pronounced mint farb stuff, right? Which is, I'm going to say, a very loose translation. It's not a translation at all of that. There's been caramel color added, right? Okay. And then they know whether, obviously, on the label, whether caramel coloring or not has been added. Yeah. And before we go into nose and then taste the whiskey. Uh, you've had enough of your tenants. Yeah. You've went a little bit more mainstream. And what are you? What beer are you drinking now? Eh, I wouldn't quite say it was mainstream. I went for more a, mainstream than I went the tenants. A, a, a beer from Bruges. Mm-hmm. It's actually a, a brewery I visited uh, with Neil, who obviously recommended tenants uh, uh, for the first beer. But it's Bruges Zoot or Zot. Uh, it's got a wee jester on it. Uh, it was actually, it was a lovely brewery to be honest. It was actually yeah. a lovely brewery. We had some fine beers from it. Had this beer, in fact. Uh, I was really excited when I seen it in the shop. I go into the shop blind, looking for the beers, just looking for something that's interesting. Um, and yeah, I was really happy that I found this and a good wee bit of nostalgia off it as well. Oh, definitely. Uh, I'm trying a Bavarian beer, and I was sold on this. Um, purely by the fact the person who was selling it said when everybody thinks of German beer they think tall bottles tall brown bottles yeah. labels on it dunkles dunkles and, and all sorts and he says they wanted to go on a different route and just produce a pretty much plain can German beer that people could enjoy so this is the Friday India Pale Ale he says they produce a Wednesday, Thursday, Friday and Saturday all different types of beer Right, um, so different mash bills, different kind of stouts, lagers, yeah, IPAs. But all just named after days of the week. So this is the Friday, this is the Indian Pale Ale. Uh, I actually got this from Redmond's in the East End of Glasgow. Right, okay, yeah, um, a good pub. A good pub. And because they're not being able to open, they now sell sort of beers and stuff to, to have yeah, Basically to a bottle shop. Obviously. A bottle shop, essentially, yeah. Um, so I got this from there. Uh, the Tobermory, where did you pick that up from? So I picked that up from the cave. I picked the, the beer up as well, which is kind of my local beer and spirit shop. Should mention there as well, the Klein Leash actually was purchased from Time Drum Whiskies again. Oh, uh, next day I deli- love Time Drum Whiskies. Next day delivery from Time Drum is phenomenal, but we'll take it. Um, and we'll move on a bit about Tobermory. So the distillery itself, of course, uh, Tobermory is on the Isle of Mull uh, in the town of Tobermory. Or to people of a certain vintage, I should say, uh, Balamore, that famous Scottish uh, kind of children's TV programme with Miss Hullian. There wasn't uh, a lot of whiskey drinking in Balamore. <laughs> no, no, it was a town of pink, blue, all kind of pastel colour houses. Uh, but I could, when I visited Tobermore, I couldn't quite believe uh, it wasn't quite the land of milk and honey that Balamore painted out to be. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so the distillery itself, Tobermory Distillery, it was founded in 1798 uh, by a John Sinclair. But they didn't actually get the licence until 1823. Right. Which I would kind of say then they were founded in 1823. Uh, but we can skim over that. So over its years of kind of running, it's been closed, it's been opened. Uh, it closed in 1837. And then opened again in 1878. So what's that? It's a 40-year so silent period. So it ran for longer without a licence than it did with a licence. And then it runs from 1878 mm-hmm. until 1930. Yeah. When it again closes in 1930 until 1972. Mm-hmm. So that's another 40-odd year closure, which... Not a great... Yeah, start for a distillery, really. Great kind of couple hundred years for this distillery. But in 1972, a company buys the distillery and refurbishes it and uh, calls it Le Chague. Le Chague is also a brand that you would associate with Tobermory Distillery. It's also a brand that they distilled there. Is that the... I haven't read a little bit about Tobermory Le Chague distilleries. 
1972 purchase yeah. is quite interesting in the sense that it's very, very unique and strange. Maybe not unique at the time, but very, very odd. It was a Liverpool shipping company. Right. A sherry producer. Okay. And then also offshore interests um, and oh. Panamanian interests. Right, okay. Which... Connor, in, in 2021, especially in 2020, has uh, connotations of maybe dodgy dealings? Oh, but dodgy dealings. I mean, Panamanian interests could just be someone in London's got a bank account and they've invested in Tobermory Distillery. <laughs> but Panamanian interests in 1972 just shouts at me that Something dodgy is going on here. Right. Not to insult well, any, was, any business in Panama, I guess. Well, that was Ronan that said that for any legal reasons. I am not Ronan. Allegedly dodgy activity. So I heard. Uh, yeah, so Burns Stewart buys a Tobermory uh, for around 600000 to 800000 mm-hmm. uh, Was that in 1993? Yeah, so in 1993, Burns Stewart, brother of Rod, bought the distillery um, after, again, what would suggest to me, allegedly, uh, that there was some dodginess going on. What happened was that 1992, Harold Curry, no relation, but Harold Curry... I wish he was. Uh, Harold Curry, ex-Pernal Ricard, and also the founder of Isle of Arran Distilleries. Right, okay. And also the chairman of St Mirren Football Club, right. who hired Alex Ferguson to be their manager. Very interesting, man. Right. So, man of many talents. Himself... A guy called Stuart Jowett, who was the current owner of Tobermory Distillery. Okay. And Derek Hewson, who was a tax and revenue consultant, Oof. planned to acquire Tobermory Distillery, which was silent at the time, um, to get it up and running again. Yeah. So they created this Spirit of 1992 PLC <laughs> as a business expansion scheme. Okay. Or BES project which exempted investors from paying capital gains tax. Oh. This is where the Panamanian interests come back. Right. So the group issued the plan to potential investors in 1982 and luckily managed to attract £750,000 worth of investment. Okay. They then started distilling and then in 1993 the distillery was purchased by Burns Stewart. Right. They kept everything they produced. They retained around 150,000 litres which they've sold to different independent bottlers. It's sometimes been released as the single malt Scotch whiskey from the Isle of Mull. Um, But it just sort of shows that there's a very interesting, quite different (laughs) history of who owned what distillery at what time between Panamanian interests and some capital gains tax avoiders, allegedly. Um, So it's got quite an interesting history. They were also owned by a property company, after the Panamanian interests and the, the, the silent period of the distillery, being owned by a property company who had dreams of holiday homes and he stored a lot of cheese there at one yeah, point. Yeah, they turned Tobermory, a lot of the buildings of Tobermory distillery into kind of like kind of um, Airbnb flats type thing, didn't they? Kind of like rentable flats. Yeah. I see they rented a bit out to a local creamery, which isn't the worst thing, but it's strange for the distillery. Yeah, absolutely. And right, I'll move on so we avoid any potential litigation in the future. Although <laughs> we might have just uh, secured ourselves some dates in court there. A <laughs> uh, bit about the distillery, it's got a traditional five ton uh, cast iron mash tun, yeah. which as a traditionalist in terms of whiskey, it sounds pretty good, right. to be honest. I like that old still mashed down. It's got four wooden washbacks. Mm-hmm. Yep, again, very good. It's got a 48 to 100-hour fermentation. Big Quite a big variance. Yeah. I presume the mash done on Friday, they don't work the weekend, so yeah. that's what it gets. If you add 48 to Saturday, Sunday, that's 48, that's 96. So there I presume that's where you get your 100 hours fermentation they've got two pairs of stills and it's important to remember that two pairs of stills actually means two wash stills and two spirit stills yeah. they're running a decent operation there yeah. uh, they're producing eight mashes a week I don't know on the days I presume they're working two on a Monday to Friday and one on a Friday then they're cleaning on, mm-hmm. the, on the kind of Friday second half of that kind yeah. of shift uh, I see the capacity 
1 million litres. In 2019, they produced 750,000 litres. And from that, it was 55 to 45% split in favour of Lechegg. So obviously, they're heavily peated malt. So they're, he- they're heavily peated malt, Lechegg, introduced by Burns Stewart. Right, was or, it? Or the, the brand was re-established by Burns Stewart. So in 2019, they were actually producing more of a day, the Chegg, than Tobermory was. Right. Will we move on to the nose? What do you think? The nose, Tobermory, an island distillery, you would automatically look at certain characters along with sort of Campbelltown whiskies in the sense that it's quite briny. Right. Campbelltown and coastal whiskies, or whiskey distilleries. Briny, salty. I'm getting a lot of cooked fruits, citrusy, a little bit of honey in there. Again, the saltiness comes through. It's got that coastal sort of note to it. It really comes across on the nose. Um, what about yourself? Yeah, there is there is a brininess to it. It maybe, maybe lacks that kind of Campbelltown or Isla or like kind of other island, kind of Talisker or Highland Park feels to it. I don't think it's got as much. It's not, it's not as... Heavily influenced, I think, by the coastal notes that you tend to get. That's probably because most of the casks of Tobermory are stored on the mainland. Are they? They're not sitting at the distillery. I think it's only sort of say limited edition special bottlings that they'll come out with. Those casks have come from the island, and they probably have more of that kind of coastal, coastal influence right, on the west coast of Scotland because right. the, the, the environment in which the casks are stored the environment within the warehouse has obviously had a huge effect in, during yeah. the maturation of the whisky but for majority of Tobermory they will be stored in central Belt of Scotland it's easier for bottling it's easier for shipping such yeah. like so you, it's probably not as strong as what yeah. we're saying for Campbelltown certainly yeah. but but yeah, that doesn't mean it's bad because no. What I was going to say was, it's got a great hillside kind of heather smell to yeah. it. It's really, really nice that. Um, it's also got a kind of milk chocolate apricots. Really interesting nose. I think that's a wee bit of the kind of virgin cask influence coming through on it. Yeah, so a, so a virgin cask is a cask that's been solely built in the Tobermory spirit, the new mate was filled in. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's not it was, used it was a previous. fresh cask. It yeah. wasn't used for bourbon. It wasn't used in the bourbon trade or it wasn't used in the kind of French wine or other European wine trades or any other kind of spirit or wine trade yeah. across the world. It's just a fresh oak cask. So this is a, a mixture of first fill bourbon. Within the bourbon industry, they only ever use casks once. Yeah. They take virgin casks, fill it with bourbon and then they essentially sell it to the whiskey industry yeah. or the rum industry. Mm-hmm. So it's a mixture of first fill bourbon and then virgin oak. Yeah. yeah. So on the palate, mm. I am getting a lot of that kind of virgin oak influence. I'm getting a lovely spiciness. I'm mm. getting kind of vanilla sweetness that you would expect from... Uh, when we say virgin oak, in this case, we mean American virgin oak. So it's yeah. made with... Uh, Curcus Alba, to give you the Latin name of um, the American species of oak, but it's very complex, I feel. Um, It's it's getting... On you go. I'm getting... I do get, again, similar to the cleanliness, I'm getting a sort of leathery note in the palate, mossiness, going back to the sort of heathery Scottish hillside sort sort of feel to it. Again, a very soft touch of the salty sort of brininess in the background. A little bit of tobacco... Yeah, that sort of note to it. Um, I would often say we a Tobermory, an old cigar box, not the cigar itself, but the, the box and yeah. the, the sort of smell that's left within that. That kind of woody, yeah, but wood. also tainted by it's, cigar. Yeah, kind of. and it's got the, the fruity notes that you get, and also a little leatheriness, a little bit of, sort of yeastiness as well. It's 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 a, a very very enjoyable whiskey. Yeah, I, I think. Isn't what you would think it would be, but it's very, very enjoyable, very, very drinkable as well. Yeah, it's it's very drinkable. I did a wee bit of water there. I'm getting rich, malty flavours. I'm getting sweet barley sugar. I'm getting Scottish tablet, and I'm getting that appley kind of note. 
Uh, it's almost like a kind of apple pastry, like an apple turnover. Yeah. Uh, and on the finish, to be honest, I'm disappointed with this finish. I thought it was quite a short finish, uh, maybe medium short, I would say, but also you're getting that saltiness through. I, I really like from the finish. What about yourself? Yeah, within the finish, I agree with a lot of the tasting notes that you're, you're pointing out. Um, very, very malty, nutmeggy, sort of sweet plums. A little bit of spicy. When you say it. nutmeg there, it reminds me of uh, the soup you were making the other day. Fuck off. I mean, it was the ginger I added to the oh, soup. Was oh, yeah. I tell you. Was the, it the ginger? Yeah, I was just making a standard potato and leek soup and I added just a little bit too much ginger and it was absolutely stunning. Uh, I would rather rather have the soup than this whiskey again, that's for sure. Oh, uh, come on. <laughs> come on, that's a uh, whiskey. Yeah, oh, it's actually very enjoyable, but you should have tasted the soup. <laughs> uh, on the sort of palate and into the finish, it's very spicy, mostly coming from the, let's say the virgin oak cask. Yeah. Really the spiciness is coming through the black pepper, cayenne pepper. Um, I get a little bit of peppermint. Yeah. And then, just in the end, a bit of dark chocolate sort of, loveliness to it very very sweet as well in the finish yeah I was thinking, I was thinking more kind of chocolate lines like yeah, it does have a chocolate it is, it is a very very short finish I'll agree with you yeah, there it's not, it's not like it's not an abrupt yeah it's not a st- staccato finish but it's short it's not medium it's short isn't yeah, it it's, it's, you would be wanting longer there's just a little glimpse of what could be I guess yeah there um, I don't know whether because it's been reduced to 46.3 yeah the, the finish to me is yeah it's just a little bit too short to what I would expect from the nose and the palate from it right well we move on to a wee kind of recap of what we thought of both whiskies we've tried why don't you start with the Klein Leash so the nose of the Klein Leash I really really got the herbal grassiness to it very highland whiskey orientated citrus notes coming through I said previously got a little bit of ginger maybe because of the soup I made um, but yeah I really got this sort of herbal grassy citrusy little bit again sort of green apple through that as well um, moving on to the taste again I started I really really got a floral uh, citric note and of a little bit of soft smoke even though it's not a peated whiskey yeah. a little bit of soft smoke Honey, on the taste, I really started to get that traditional Klein Leash waxy note. That really started coming through for me. Not as much as I would assume Klein Leash would have. I think from previous tastings of Klein Leash from independent bottlers, it cast strength usually with independent bottlers, the Klein Leash would come across really thick, mm. really juicy, loads of that sort of natural oils coming through. For this, the 14-year-old, I didn't get it as much. Maybe that's because it's just been reduced to 46%. Yeah, it started to really get a little bit of the waxiness through. The finish, again, the oiliness, like tropical fruits, stewed fruits, but also quite oak-like, a little bit of woodiness coming through, quite fruity as well, a little bit of spicy note in there as well. What about yourself for the Klein Leash? Yeah, so probably, probably quite similar. Like When I took the first nose... Of this Climage fourteen, I thought this is this is warm. This is this is quite inviting. Yeah, uh, I got more of the kind of slight kind of smokiness, that kind of slight whiff of smoke on 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 the nose. Yeah, uh, that green apple that you mentioned and that citrusy note coming through. But really, for me, it was more orange right. than, than it was uh, lemon. I got kind of a honey note. Mm-hmm. Uh, as I said, it was kind of that kind of more more like honey is obviously a kind of viscous yeah uh, food, but it was more kind of like honeycomb. Like if you actually get the kind of yeah the, the honeycomb to it, then it would really taste like that and that slight kind of furniture polish uh, coming through yeah at the end on the palate you're getting that oiliness, you're getting that famous waxiness that Kleinlish is kind of. Famous for yeah. yeah, yeah, like everybody associates Klinglish with that. Lovely bit of woodiness, uh, that kind of forest notes, pine, that type of thing. Yeah. And then slight bitterness at the end of the palate, but not in a bad way. It was just I had that wee bit of slight bitterness 
finish wise, it was a medium long finish. I was getting more of the kind of oakiness that I was getting in the palate, but mm. I was also getting a cumin, a wee bit of kind of paprika, and then I was getting a wee bit of more kind of allspice coming in at the end there. Yeah. So for the Tobermory, what were what was your sort of tasting most of the Tobermory? Yeah, on the nose I was just getting that kind of hillside, yeah, heather kind of kind of nose. Um, yeah, that kind of heather type thing. I was getting milk chocolate. I was getting apricot on the palate. I'd started to taste the virgin oak influence. I was getting slight spiciness. I was getting that vanilla sweetness that you'd expect from virgin oak mm-hmm. uh, mature whiskey. Yeah. Uh, but I actually thought it was quite complex. Um, it had a lot of rich malty flavours, barley sugar, fruity flavours, Scottish tablet coming through there, yeah. and kind of ending with a bit of kind of like apple turnover, a kind of apple pastry type thing. Yeah. Apple sweetness, sugar. Uh, really enjoyed the palate there. Finish wise, I thought it was quite a short finish. Yeah. Uh, it's been a very kind of promising whiskey from the nose and from the palate. It was a short finish. I'm not going to hold it against it, to be honest. It was uh, very pleasing on the nose, very pleasing on the palate. On that finish, as I say, short, but you're getting that saltiness, kind of slight saltiness. Not quite as much as a kind of Isla or an island distillery. Even though it is an island distillery, it's not quite as much that saltiness that you would expect. Yeah. But that makes it different from all the island distilleries. It's, yeah. it's, it's more towards a highland whiskey yeah, I could, I than could, it is yeah. towards a west coast island distillery and yeah I, I, I like it I like it a lot what yeah. about yourself yeah so on the nose and the palate for me very very similar in, in what you nose is essentially what you get on the palate it cooked fruits citrusy sort of lemons and limes honey very hay like um, stewed fruits as I said as leathery bit of the old woodiness coming through or an old wood sort of note to it I guess that may be just the virgin oak just that sort of note coming through a little bit of spiciness added water in on the palate you've really seen the effects of it you've got a little bit of the salty and the brightness starting to come through as I said previously you start getting this tobacco old book leatheriness to it yeah a little bit of yeastiness in there as well very malty vanilla nutmeg sweet plums just by a little bit of when, when, you, when you've added water these flavours just start coming yeah, up a little pop, bit more they pop out at you yeah the finish as you said very very short I thought not to what the nose and the, the, the palate would suggest I get but you get that spiciness minty pepperminty sort of note as well as I started to get a little bit more dark chocolate and sort of thickness as well to it but now we move on to the hotly contested Whiskey League. The Scotch Whiskey League. Scotch the SWL. Whiskey. The SWL. Where we stand. More at? tightly contested than the uh, Scottish Premier League. This yeah, season. absolutely. What, where we stand just now is the World Whiskey League. Box Distillery. It's number High, one. High Coast Distillery. Still winning that. By number itself. one out of one. Yeah. Uh, so the dictatorship is the World Whiskey League. Yeah. And then... In the Scotch Whiskey League, the SWL, as we've decided to call it, uh, we are currently at Longwell Red in the Nicknean, uh, Longwell Red number one, Nicknean number two. It's a, a contentious subject. Um, it is settled. <laughs> Can't change it now. Uh, number three is the Glen Scotia Port, uh, the Camerton Malts Festival bottling, and then number uh, number three, number four is the Ardbeg Wee Beastie. Uh, at number four. Yeah. So we'll start with the Klein Leash, 14 years old. Yeah. 46%. Mm-hmm. Where would you put that within that top four, soon to be top five, and then soon to be top six? So I would put that between the Glen Scotia, which is third, and the Ardbeg, which is fourth. So I would put the Klein Leash in number four. Yeah. Pushing the Ardbeg down. Pushing the Ardbeg down. Yeah. But below the Glen Scotia the Nickney and the, the Long Row what about yourself? yeah I suppose it doesn't make for a very good argument but I would actually agree with you there I'd actually say the Klein Leash 14 year old for me it just doesn't have the hype that would suggest about a Klein Leash yeah um, to me I think I was looking at this and going that Klein Leash is up there could be number one yeah it, for what my 
previous tastings of Kleinlich would be. But for me, the 14-year-old just fits nicely in there between Klein Scotia and Ardbeg. I think it's a very good sippable whiskey that's probably uh, found in a lot of Scottish people's houses. And I think that's what it's designed to be. Like, I, yeah, out, yeah. Of a, out of a whiskey, yeah. I would I would want it to be a more like burst of flavours in your mouth, overpowering almost. But yeah. that's almost a personal taste. This whiskey... Is not designed to be that. I wouldn't think it's full of flavour. It's complex. It's got a lot going for it. But like, is it going to beat a long roll red or a Glen Scotia? Is, see, like, is it going to beat that? I don't. I don't think it is. I think out of the whiskies we've tried with this Klein Leash, this is the one I would probably drink the most. Yeah, yeah. You, like it's, it's it, when we're putting them in the Scotch whisky league, and you think the long roll red and the Rugnian and the Glen yeah. Scotia port. As an individual dram, yeah. I would I would pick them over the Klein Leash. It's it's a whiskey. It's an it's an everyday whiskey. Exactly. I would put this. It's not quite a breakfast whiskey. No, but it's an everyday whiskey. I would, yeah, I would say the Klein Leash is a whiskey that I I would be happily if I had to if I was forced to have a dram of it every day. That's the one. It's easy to drink, packed with flavour. Yeah, I, I, if there was an alternative. Third league within this system that was everyday, everyday, dra- drams, everyday drams, then I'd put the Klein Leash above the other four that we've, that we've rated so far, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what about the Toramori then? Toramori 12, 46.3. Where does that fit in to your league? Well, I'm scared to say where I want to put it in the league because I was hoping to have a wee argument with you, to be honest, but <laughs> I would put the Tobermory uh, below the Ardbeg, to be honest, and it's not because it's a bad whiskey, it's a very good whiskey, yeah. but speaking of the everyday whiskey league, this is a subdivision of uh, the Scotch whiskey league, yeah. almost like uh, the... British National Party is it <laughs> is a subdivision of what the Conservatives no, 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 no. I pretty much <laughs> but I was going to put the Tobermory below the Ardbeg because it is an everyday whiskey yeah it is I would drink that most days yeah like, it's a very very nice whiskey but is it as good as the King Leash In, for my palate for myself, yeah. no, it's not. Yeah. So, is it as good as the Ardbeg? Yeah. Yeah. I don't. I like. I'm putting it below the Ardbeg. I'd be open. I'd be open to persuasion. Yeah. Just quickly point out, we are no way comparing Tobermory to the BNP party. Um. No way making that connection. I don't think we made that connection. I'm just saying. <laughs> <laughs> Some people might say that we made that connection. I am just saying Tobermory is. How has no, no connection knowingly with the British Nationalist Party. Yeah. Um, I would suggest that the Tobermory should be above the Ardbeg. I think the Tobermory is a much more approachable, easy drinking, enjoyable whiskey. Yeah. Do you that, think that's just down to you not liking smoky whiskies? Yes. And why? Um, because I don't particularly like heavily peated whiskies. And to me, the Ardbeg, to be honest, we sort of suggested that there would be a top 10 within yeah, this league, yeah, yeah, yeah. and then anything would drop out. It would drop out. Ah. The Ardbeg, to me, for, in my own league, would drop out fairly, fairly quickly. Right. Because there's, I just, I don't like the Ardbeg that much. Yeah. I'd much rather have an easy, approachable, enjoyable whiskey. Yeah. This. Full of flavour, lovely brightness to it as well. Yep. Um, very citrusy, fruity as well. I'd much rather have that over the Ardbeg. Right, okay. So for me, I would put that above the Ardbeg. And also, I quite like their, their, their very <laughs> interesting history. Yeah. Um, the shady and... Allegedly say shady history yeah. with Tobermory. I think it makes it a much more interesting distillery um, and then you taste the whiskies and to me the Tobermory is a for me a more enjoyable whiskey yeah to be honest I suppose you've convinced me 
on my own personal standings, I would probably put Ardbeg and Tobermory level. Yeah. But I think you've uh, managed to convince me, just just like, uh, truthfully and honestly, that Long Row was always going to be the best whiskey that the ones we well, had. Well, I was going to say this. I gave you the Long Row being number yeah, one. Yeah, I'm so going to concede. I'm going to concede. Yeah. So we've got Long Row Red and Nick Nain and Glen Scotia Port yep. stay in place one two three and then we go Kleinleash 14 number four Tobermory 12 year old number five and then the Ardbeg we beasted has dropped down to number six the, the poor run of form from Ardbeg yeah okay thanks guys cheers thanks very much that marks the end of podcast number three